Seven, shown of its apostrophe, has been called Britain's answer to Star Trek, although it is, to be fair, far more than that. It has, for one thing, far more in common with Star Wars than it has with Star Trek, although it eschews George Lucas's space fantasy exuberance for a more Orwellian nihilism. Developed by Terry Nation, best known for creating the Daleks, Blake Seven came about completely by accident. As we all know, when in doubt, print the legend. And the legend of Blake Seven went something like this. Nation was summoned to BBC Television Centre on Wood Lane in London to discuss possible new series ideas. Nation's previous series, Survivors, which ran from 1975 to 1977, had been something of a hit for anti-Beeb, and they wanted something similar. Survivors was a great show, a downbeat dystopia about a world where most of humanity had been wiped out by a Chinese plague. The series was one of the first to feature a heavily driven home ecology message and was well ahead of its time in terms of television, although the premise owed more than a small debt to John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Nowadays, though, you can't change the channel without hitting upon a plucky band of Survivors Face the End of the World drama series, but Survivors was quite unique in its day. With Survivors having run its course, the BBC felt another science fiction-tinged family adventure show might be the order of the day, and Nation dutifully obliged with a number of pitches, none of which were finding favour with the cigar-chomping executives. Nation, in a panic, found himself running out of his pre-prepared list of ideas. Tap-dancing as fast as he could, Nation called upon the far recesses of his brain for an idea he'd had long ago. Calling it Robin Hood in Space, Nation waxed lyrical about a rebel leader who, off the top of his head, he named Blake. In the future, this man Blake would lead a band of merry men against an oppressive and totalitarian government. Nation was flailing at this point, clearly making it up as he went along. He was therefore shocked and incredibly surprised when the BBC, who liked the pitch immensely, gave him the go-ahead for a 13-episode series. As I say, that's the legend. And a very good one it is, too. Who cares if it's not entirely accurate? In pre-series interviews, Nation referred to Blake Seven as the Dirty Dozen in space, but the Robin Hood appellation fits much better, especially in the first series. With the BBC liking what they heard, Blake Seven was rushed into production in June of 1977, with an overall budget of £750,000, a budget the series would quickly zoom by, causing terrible overspends as the SFX guys tried to compete with this new film coming out called Star Wars. Production overruns became commonplace. The Beeb's insistence that this complicated, futuristic series could be filmed on the same budget as a bog-standard and recently axed police drama Softly Softly caused many headaches. At one point, the cast was shooting four different episodes with four different directors in the same week. Nation was contracted to write all 13 shows, but would find this a struggle, often doing first drafts and passing them over to script editor Chris Butcher for a rewrite and dialogue polish. Despite these problems, the series was picked up for a Series B after only three episodes of Series A had been transmitted. Blake Seven debuted on BBC One on Bank Holiday Monday, the 2nd of January 1978. Coincidentally, the month Star Wars went on general release in the UK. 
The series is, again, a dystopian science fiction drama, far more violent than its American counterpart, Star Trek. And the tag, the British Star Trek, is one the series desperately tried to live down throughout its run, if only because it wasn't terribly accurate. Yes, it's true the two shows, more than any others, represent their country's differing viewpoints, but they're also reflective of the times they were made. Star Trek represents the optimism of the 1960s, science fiction seen through the lens of Kennedy and his grand vision of the new frontier. Blake 7, by contrast, was more representative of the cynical 70s. The political unrest and civil disobedience were still there, but nations seemed far more influenced by Orwell's 1984, and Blake 7 featured themes of surveillance, governmental control of the populace through drugs and entertainment, and oppression. Whereas Star Trek celebrated man and his achievements, Blake 7, as stated by Robert Hanks in the Independent newspaper, celebrated the inherent crapness of the universe. It is science fiction for the disillusioned and ironic, and that's what makes it so very British. Nation had always been interested in dictatorships and how they arose. See his Doctor Who story, Genesis of the Daleks, where he equates the cosmic pepper pots to Nazism more clearly. And his view of the future was decidedly more pessimistic than Gene Roddenberry, as seen in his last series, the aforementioned Survivors, where battling evil was never easy, never as simple or a clean cut as goodies versus baddies. He brought both of these themes to Blake Seven. The first season of Blake Seven was written entirely by Nation, and, as I've said, consisted of 13 episodes, all heavily serialised. The first four episodes take their time to set out the series' stall, and are, essentially, a four-hour pilot episode. The seven main characters alluded to in the title make their introduction slowly over the course of these opening shows, and even then there are only seven if one includes the sentient computer Zen. One of the prime discussions about Blake Seven on Terry Wogan's morning radio show centred around this numbering system and the confusion it generated. The core cast for Series A were Blake, Avon, Villa, Jenna, Callie, Gan and the computer Zen. However, the arrival of Aurak, the mini supercomputer at the end of Series A, now meant that there were eight central characters, unless Blake himself wasn't counted, which, if the title was Blake's Seven, made sense. This would only get more confusing in Series B with the death of one of the main cast, and further confusion would ensue in Series C and D, which didn't even feature Blake. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's the opening theme. episode, The Way Back, sets up the premise. Rog Blake, played by Gareth Thomas, was a dissident and resistance fighter who was brought to book by the Federation, the government of the era. 
is brainwashed by the Federation into forgetting his past and released only when he is a respectable member of the community. However, the past is not so easily escaped, and Blake is lured to a meeting of the Resistance, where he is informed of his past affiliations, something he finds hard to believe. He slowly comes around when the Resistance informs him that his family, whom he believes are safe on a distant colony world, are in fact dead, as is anyone who ever befriended him. This is understandably all a little much for poor Blake, and he retires to a quiet corner of the room to clear his head and try to make sense of it all. Whilst taking stock, Blake witnesses the Federation burst in, guns blazing, and they kill all the Resistance members with impunity. The Federation capture Blake and decide that living or dead, he is a lightning rod for the Resistance. He's the living embodiment of problematic. They can't kill him because then he's a martyr, but brainwashing him again clearly doesn't work. Instead, they elect to do something far more nefarious. They elect to frame Blake on charges of paedophilia. After a show trial, Blake is unsurprisingly found guilty and sentenced to a penal colony on the prison planet of Cygnus Alpha. Back on Earth, Blake's lawyer continues to investigate Blake's claims that he was framed and finds ample evidence to support this. About to come forward with this new evidence, he and his wife are brutally murdered by the Federation, a murder that goes unnoticed and unavenged. Blake, thinking his lawyer is still investigating, is stunned when he is placed aboard the Starship London and sent off on his journey without even an appeal. Blake is still hopelessly naive at this point. That will change as the series progresses. On the ship, Blake meets smuggler Jenna, played by Sally Nivette, and thief Villa Restal, played by Michael Keating. Keating is welcome relief from the heavy themes of this first episode, as he would be for the remainder of the series. Villa joins Blake only because he thinks he'll be safer with him than in prison. He's a coward, only interested in himself, and this would be mined for both comedy and drama as the series went forth, with Villa's cowardice almost causing people's deaths on more than one occasion. However, unlike Dr. Smith in Lost in Space, Villa is tolerated because his skills as a lock and safe cracker are second to none. What's perhaps most brutal about these opening episodes are how underhand the Federation are depicted to be. Despite the threadbare production values, the scripting is very tight, with the Federation not just framing Blake, but actually brainwashing a bunch of kids into thinking they actually have been abused. Think about that for a second. The Federation brainwashes a bunch of innocent kids into thinking they've actually been sexually abused, something that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. The Federation doesn't fuck about. The show was far more ambitious than its budget, but that's not a bad thing. UK audiences were used to BBC shows not having much in the way of money, and therefore compensating with superior characterisation and story. Blake, now thoroughly indignant, vows to return. Take a long look. That's the last you'll ever see of it. No, I'm coming back. The way back also takes everything we think we know about stories and chucks it out of the airlock. We expect that Blake's lawyer will clear him. After all, we can't have the hero of the show believed to be a kiddie fiddler. After this exoneration, we expect Blake will team up with a bunch of like-minded individuals in a campaign against the Federation, who we now know are pretty much bad guys. Nation doesn't do any of that. He kills Blake's lawyer and has Blake sent to the Gulag. The general population are mostly apathetic to the Federation. One corrupt government is pretty much the same as another, right? And therefore, they don't really care what Blake is up to. Unlike other series with clear-cut heroes and villains, here we have a collection of criminals taking on the supposed elected government. 
Over the run of the series, Brake will score a few victories, but more often than not will be ground down again and again by the system he wants to bring down. His character will change as the series progresses, with him becoming more and more unhinged and obsessed. Episode 2 and 3 form a two-part story, while still being part of the overall narrative. Spacefall picks up exactly where the way back leaves off, giving no concessions to viewers that may have missed episode 1. Nation introduces some really quite dark touches right from the get-go, with the commander of the London coming across as a nice guy at first, who shows an interest in the well-being of his crew, but then he tacitly gives his first order permission to rape Jenna, as long as he's discreet about it. The series also has a wonderful matter-of-factness regarding space travel. It's long and boring and treated as such. Transporting these criminals to Cygnus Alpha will take eight months. A far cry from zipping about in hyperspace or being involved with outer space dogfights. Of course, Spacefall is better known by being the introduction of ace computer hacker Kerr Avon, played with relish by Paul Darrow. Darrow's cynical, untrustworthy performance became a staple of the series, and Avon became the breakout character for many viewers. His acerbic asides and frequent confrontations with Blake over his idealism tended to give Avon a more everyman feel. He was the king of snark before that was even a thing, but he too evolved, becoming more interested in what Blake was trying to achieve. This came in useful with Gareth Thomas's exit from the show after Series B and Avon's elevation to Series Star. Avon was also typical of the types of characters that would populate Blake 7. These were virtuous, perfect examples of sophisticated, futuristic man. The central characters in Blake 7 are criminals, cowards, unscrupulous and definitely not to be trusted. Naturally, these are our heroes. The central story to this second episode is Blake rallying the criminals into taking over the prison ship. Nation does a good job with establishing Blake as someone who's used to having people follow him, although this being a ship filled with crooks probably made that easy for him. The confined sets and claustrophobic feel immense immeasurably with this bottle show. Whilst the series would take unceasing flack throughout its entire run from critics as to the quality of its effects and sets, it's clear the production people were doing their very best with limited resources. It suffers as well from that flat BBC lighting whenever they are in a studio, something Peter Davison would complain about incessantly during his time as Doctor Who, but the script quality and the acting is clearly of a decent standard, and the show quickly became a hit with viewers. The second plot in Spacefall involves the discovery of a super-fast, high-tech spacefaring vessel of unknown design. This is one of Blake Seven's rare weak spots in the early episodes. Where the ship came from is never explained, but it does give our heroes a fighting chance. The crew of the London send Blake, Jenner and a few others aboard the ship after members of the crew are killed trying to access it. After all, who gives a damn about dead prisoners? However, Blake and co turn the tables and gain control of the ship, which they name the Liberator. They steal away in the vessel, vowing to return to the prison planet to free the prisoners. This seems quite naive of Blake to me. Whilst he may be innocent of the crime he's sentenced for, I kind of doubt anybody else is. There is also no reason for Blake to think they will follow him after he frees them. So far, the people he's encountered have been honourable criminals. Avon is a computer-hacking bank robber. Jenna and Villa are thieves. They aren't murderers or rapists. But I doubt this is true of everybody on board the London. Episode 3, Cygnus Alpha, picks up where we left off, even if the timeline seems a little out of whack. The London arrives on the penal colony planet after its eight-month journey, yet we seem to pick up Blake and company where we left them, still exploring the Liberator. 
They discover that it has an AI computer called Zen, a weapons cache, a teleporter, and various sundry clothes and riches, as well as being super fast. Blake orders Zen to take them to Cygnus Alpha to pick up the crew, and they arrive in hours rather than months. Surely this means they should have arrived before the London. As Blake teleports down to the planet, Avon is tempted by the myriad riches on board the Liberator. He tries to persuade Jenna to ditch Blake and run away with him. After all, it's better to be rich than dead, and Jenna almost goes for it. Whilst this kind of ambiguous approach to characterisation is pretty standard nowadays, back then this is where Blake Seven really scored over the blander telefantasy of Irwin Allen or the Logan's Run and Man from Atlantis shows. You never quite knew where the characters' allegiances would lie. Down on the planet, Blake encounters the prisoners, now under the thrall of an obviously insane cult leader, Vargas, played with all the gusto you would expect from the mighty Brian Blessed. Vargas has told the prisoners that, after breathing Cygnus Alpha's atmosphere, they now need a drug to keep them alive. It's all a lot of bollocks, of course. Vargas craves what all madmen crave. Power. And Blake, with his ship, teleporter bracelets and super guns, has given him away off this rock. Cygnus Alpha is another great episode, continuing the pilot narrative as it introduces what the series is going to be. The characters are well-drawn and well-performed, although Paul Darrow is already starting to climb over the top mountain. There's also an inadvertent funny moment. Blake discovers the weapons room will only allow one weapon per person, and says as much, just as he hands two weapons over to Jenna. Oops. However, for the most part, this is another strong entry. It's incredibly convenient that the Liberator is fast, full of wealth and clothing, contains a teleport device and weapons. But once we let that go, the writing is pretty good, with Nation using the veneer of science fiction to tackle cults, brainwashing and organised religion. He also starts to develop chinks in the armour of the main characters. Blake, for an example, is an idealist, a character trait that grates on Avon, but starts to rub off on Jenna. Time Squad brings all of the main cast together, finally. Blake has a plan to take down a Federation communications centre on Syrian Minor, much to the displeasure of Avon and the concern of Villa. However, on the way, they pick up a distress signal and decide to see what's what. Jenna points out that a false distress signal is the oldest trick in the book, but Blake is an idealist. They teleport over to the vessel to find a crew in cryogenic suspension, but sadly Khan Noonien Singh is nowhere to be seen. Avon brings the capsule on board Liberator. With that done, they carry on back to Syrian Minor where they meet Callie, played by Jan Chapel, a telepath from the planet Auron. She is there to destroy the communication centre as well, and she teams up with Blake, Avon and Villa to accomplish that goal. Needless to say, everything goes tits up, but we don't have a dramatic story if everything goes swimmingly. Nation does his best job of balancing the large cast and different plot strands, giving Villa and Avon the best dialogue, but supplying all the cast members with something to do. It struggles to remain wholly gripping over its 50-minute running time, but on the whole, this stands up well. Production values are realised pretty well in this episode, with a lot of nice location filming on the planet and a B-plot featuring Jenna versus the suspended animation people on the ship that, surprisingly for BBC in-studio stuff, has quite dark and moody lighting. The planet footage is again shot in a quarry and an old boiler factory, but the locations are well used at least. By the end of episode 4, the seven are in place. Do you wish to return to Aron? I cannot return to my people. I have failed. Then stay with us. Thank you. What are we going to do about the projectile? Dump it in deep space. Thanks a lot. I don't like the sound of that. It's murder. 
to rather it was hooked back into the power system. You heard Zen. A single cell from those genetic banks can be incubated into a fully grown adult in 1.6 minutes. We could be up to our armpits in homicidal maniacs within the hour. Maybe that's why Zen was so uncooperative. Seems to me it should have taught us something. Something about the wisdom involved in bringing aliens aboard. Seven of us can run the ship properly. Six, surely. You forgot Zen. You're not counting that machine as a member of the crew. Oh, what do you say to that, Zen? Please state course and speed. Very diplomatic. Set a course for Kentaro. Speed standard by two. Confirmed. These four 50-minute episodes were edited down into a BBC direct-to-video movie called The Beginning, released in 1985. The way back and Time Squad came worse off, with the former being cut down to about 10 minutes and the latter removing the entire suspended animation plot to bring the running time down to 120 minutes. Weirdly, this works rather well, showing how good Nation was at structuring this to feel like a longer narrative rather than episodic television. However, the longer narrative does occasionally lead to problems. Nation's scripts tended to be repetitive with a lot of padding, meaning that upcoming first season episodes like Duel or The Web crawl along rather than being fast-paced dramas. All of Nation's scripts are good enough to be filmed today, they just need tightening up in places. There are good 40-45 minute episodes buried in these 50-55 to minute episodes of Blake 7. These four opening episodes only scratch the surface of what Blake 7 would become. They don't introduce the series' main antagonist, Servalan, played by a Poundland version of Joan Collins, Jacqueline Pierce. Pierce used her hammer horror training ground well, portraying Servalan as an icy bitch queen capable of seducing and betraying her subordinates and superiors in equal measure. With her close-cropped black hair and white gowns, Servalan always looked like she was going to the ball rather than exterminating races with extreme prejudice, and she would have fit right in on the set of Dallas. She would have definitely given V's Diana a run for her money. Servalan was joined by Travis, a one-eyed space commander with a particular grudge against Blake. Unlike most shows, this team didn't last, with Servalan ultimately making Travis her scapegoat for failing to capture Blake and his crew. The first two series of Blake 7 are the best. Nation handing over the writing reins to other writers for Series B helps immeasurably. Series script editor Chris Butcher was quoted as saying that the line between a freedom fighter and a terrorist is a fairly thin one, and he explored this to the full in Series B, culminating in the finale, Star 1, the series zenith as far as I'm concerned. After this, the series would never really be the same, with Gareth Thomas and Sally Nevette bowing out, and the series' focus being a little blurred. Servalan became steadily more campy as a villain, and Paul Darrow took Avon well over the top in his performance. Chris Boucher would return, however, to the series for a few episodes here and there, writing the series D and overall series finale Blake, another nihilistic and fatalistic conclusion that pretty much closed the door on the series being brought back for a series E. Boucher has said, though, that had the series been recommissioned, Blake would have just been another cliffhanger ending, the same as series A, B and C, and it's hard not to believe him. The series weathered the departure of its lead actor and the destruction of the Liberator with ease, even building on its audience. The BBC, though, as with Doctor Who, never seemed at ease with the fact that this cheap and cheerful science fiction drama was one of its biggest shows, and rather than embracing it and pumping some more money into the budget, they axed the series, despite Blake reaching over 10 million viewers only a few days before Christmas and up against Coronation Street. 
Nation moved over to America where he worked on MacGyver, whilst Boucher created the equally entertaining and equally maligned Star Cops. The actors all moved on. Gareth Thomas continued to be a much-in-demand theatre actor, but mainstream success eluded him. He went through the not-wanting-to-talk-about-Blake-7 phase and emerged on the other side, finally happy to embrace it. Better to be remembered for something than nothing, I suppose. He passed away in 2016, aged 71. The rest of the cast went back to being jobbing actors. Paul Darrow embraced Blake Seven the most, penning books about Avon and keeping his toe in the water should a revival happen. He, Michael Keating and Sally Nivette all appeared in various soaps and TV shows over the years. They have all reunited for Big Finish audios. Blake Seven still has a cult following, but isn't perhaps as well remembered as it should be. In many ways, it's the precursor to the more adult reboot of Battlestar Galactica, with its darker themes and multifaceted characters, and is a fine example of television science fiction. As with a lot of material from this era, it has its issues, but it's well worth a look. One of Jerry Anderson's biggest hits, and one of his personal favourite series, was Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. Jerry and I have that in common. Easily my personal favourite of the Super Marionation series, Captain Scarlet was a darker and more grown-up affair than Anderson's other stuff, while still being unparalleled boy's own action-adventure fur. Explosions, death, destruction and mayhem were the order of the day in Captain Scarlet. Sadly though, by the end of the 60s, Anderson was tiring of the puppet shows that made his name and itching to venture into movies and live action. Scarlet had taken the technology as far as it could with puppetry, with the Captain Scarlet models looking far more realistic, proportionally, than those seen in Thunderbirds and Stingray. Also, despite the acclaim he was receiving, I always felt Anderson believed he was never really taken seriously as a filmmaker working with marionettes, this despite the unalloyed joy he's brought to many kids' lives and the many technological advances he's made with his shows. It's not an overstatement to call him the George Lucas of television, and many of the technical people working on his shows went on to work on Star Wars, Superman, Indiana Jones and the Bond series. Anderson's shows are beloved by all ages and stand the test of time, not only for their technical prowess, but for their ingenuity and entertainment value. Still, his fondness for Scarlet would crop up in his other work. His first live-action TV show, and the jewel in his crown as far as I'm concerned, was UFO, a series that had many tonal similarities to Captain Scarlet. UFO only lasted 26 episodes and ended in 1971, but the planned second season evolved into Space 1999, which ran from 1974 to 1976. Just before that was a rare foray into non-genre stuff for Anderson, The Protectors, which ran from 1972 to 1974. Neither were particularly fond memories for Anderson, and he quickly realised the source of his problems was actors. Anderson did not have a good working relationship with either Robert Vaughan or Martin Landau, the stars of both shows, and hasn't been particularly kind to actors generally over the years, with the exception of UFO's Ed Bishop, who he seemed rather fond of. His marriage to Sylvia Anderson also came to an end during the production of Space 1999, which some feel also added to his unhappiness. The death of Lou Grade and the demise of ICT also seemed to affect Anderson, and he returned to TV and puppets in the 1980s with Dick Spanner and Terrorhawks, another show that bore a superficial resemblance to Captain Scarlet. To that end, when Anderson was given the chance to revive one of his old properties as an all-new CG series, it's no surprise he returned to Captain Scarlet. Classed as hyper-marionation to separate it from the super-marionation puppet shows, it's no real surprise that Anderson would gravitate towards CG as a way of realising his vision. 
Anderson was always at the forefront of special effects technology, so embracing mocap CG seemed a logical way to go and proved another way that he was like George Lucas. Test footage for Jerry Anderson's new Captain Scarlet was created in 2000 and screened privately for backers and family. This footage convinced Jerry that a new Captain Scarlet was feasible and he set about recruiting a writing staff, most of whom had grown up with the original show. Head writer Phil Ford went on to work on the Sarah Jane Adventures and Doctor Who, whilst Brian Finch worked on Coronation Street and Goodnight Mr. Tom, for which he won a BAFTA. I covered the original Captain Scarlet on an episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights not long ago, but I'll go over the basics once again. Captains Scarlet and Black are still on Mars, they still come across an alien civilization, they still blow it up with little provocation, and they still get killed for their troubles. Both men are resurrected by the Mysterons to enact their revenge against the Earth. Colonel White is still the boss of Spectrum, but here he attends an emergency meeting about the Mysteron threat at the UN. Captain Black intends to assassinate White. Captains Scarlet and Blue race to the UN to stop Black, but Black's real target is the Russian Army Chief General Zemetev. Once under Mistron control, Zemetev provides the firepower to launch an attack on Spectrum's Skybase headquarters, whilst Black himself pursues an even more devastating agenda. The first thing we need to get out of the way is the CG. It's terrible. It's a PlayStation 1 game's cutscene, and to enjoy the show, you really need to accept that in 2005 this was probably state-of-the-art, but is really ropey now. It has none of the charm of the puppets, nor the look of quality that the sets, props and special effects of the 60s version reeked of. Still, the show does have a lot going for it, so I learned to tolerate the CG, although I wish this had been animated in the regular fashion. 40s Tom and Jerry cartoons don't look dated over half a decade later, while CG seems to look dreadful just a year or so after it's originally released. The second thing we need to just accept is the score. Barry Gray was the sound of Anderson, just as John Williams is the sound of Star Wars and John Barry the sound of Bond, and Anderson without Gray just isn't as effective. However, in this case, nothing can be done. Barry Gray sadly passed away in 1984 and is irreplaceable. The music for the new show by Crispin Merrill isn't bad at all, and it's not fair to berate him for not being Barry Gray. Have a listen. Earth is at war with an alien civilization. The Mysterons can kill anyone and rebuild them as instruments of their war against us. Captain Scarlet, you are virtually indestructible. In terms of characters, all are present and correct, with everybody returning from the old show but with different voices and, in some cases, different ethnicities and nationalities. Characterization is slightly more at the forefront. Destiny Angel is in a relationship with Conrad Lefcon, the real name for Captain Black, and spends a lot of the runtime of the first episodes coming to terms with the fact that her lover is dead but still walking around. Speaking of, one of the big problems with the old show was that Scarlet was resurrected and now immortal, and everybody at Spectrum just accepted it. In this version, writer Phil Ford fills that plot hole by having Scarlet electrocuted as he dies for the second time. 
This electrocution shocks the Mistron influence out of him, but still leaves him practically indestructible. However, Spectrum don't just trust him implicitly. He's kept in a cell, and when he does convince Colonel White to let him accompany Captain Blue, he isn't allowed a gun. Ford also explains another plot problem with the old show. In the first episode of the 60s version, we clearly see Scarlet's dead body and his new form. But that's just glossed over. In this version, Scarlet is told by Dr. Marv that he isn't Tom Metcalf, or not the Tom Metcalf that went to Mars under the name Captain Scarlet. But nor is he a clone or anything like that. He is Metcalf, or Captain Scarlet as we know him, down to a genetic level. And he has all of the memories and experiences of Metcalf. But he is, in fact, a Mr. on recreation due to some of the unknown science. This is more interesting in that he is the man he was, but he also isn't the same, which I do hope will lead to some character foibles somewhere down the line. Cloudbase has changed its name to Skybase, but everything else is pretty much the same. It's still 2068, and the look of the Angels fighters, Scarlet's car, and other iconic vehicles have only changed superficially, showing the power of those original designs. Voice work is fine. The original voices were very memorable, and having to compete with the likes of Francis Matthews and Ed Bishop is no easy task. The voices are okay for what they are, but again, I need to jettison my love of the original voice cast to truly accept them. The violence and action is all present and correct, and that was appreciated. Anderson obviously felt no need to tone it down for a new era. I do sound a tad negative here, but these opening episodes are still magnificent fun, with some great action sequences and set pieces. To really get into this, I just had to let my love of the old show fall away, and then really I discovered there's not a lot of difference. All of the stuff that I had to get past is really just the kind of fanish crap that new kids watching this wouldn't have had. It is still a really faithful update of the old show in the same way Doctor Who was, which, by pure coincidence, also made its dramatic return in 2005. The series develops its cast far more than the 60s version ever did. The first episode after the two-part opening is Swarm, which sees Destiny Angel in trouble again when sentient computer bugs attack the Angels and then Skybase. Perhaps inspired by the vulture droids of the Star Wars movie Revenge of the Sith, these wasp-type attackers nearly destroy Scarbase before Scarlet and Destiny can destroy them. Along the way, Scarlet and Destiny seem to strike up a more-than-friends relationship, which the other characters all comment on. The angels are all bemoaning how lucky Destiny was to be trapped with Scarlet, and it's clear they don't mean because of his natty line in red uniforms. Rat Trap is more standard fur, with Scarlet, Blue, Destiny and Harmony fighting a Mr. and Killing Machine. The Homecoming is more of a character piece. Lieutenant Green's father, thought dead in a mission to Jupiter, is found alive and well aboard a space capsule. Of course, he turns out to be a Mr. and Agent, but getting there is a lot of fun. The series continued in this vein. The new, I say new, Captain Scarlet is just as much fun as the original, and I can see why Jerry Anderson was rightly proud of it. I also feel churlish complaining about it, because this was a really good updating of the concept for a new audience. Sadly, yes, the animation just hasn't aged well, and kids being kids would probably look at this and find it really quaint compared to the animation of shows like Clone Wars and other CG fur. The charm factor of the original can't be underestimated though, and this simply isn't as kitschy or as visually pleasing of the original, and a lot of this is down to the CG. 
Had the series caught on, I'm sure these animation problems would have been resolved, and this version of Captain Scarlet would have given Anderson a much-needed hit in his later years. Sadly, Captain Scarlet never stood a chance. Instead of being given a network erring like the later Thunderbirds remake, the new Captain Scarlet was consigned to the shitty ITV Saturday morning magazine show Ministry of Mayhem, chopped into pieces and erred haphazardly throughout the morning. Nothing affects the mood of a show more than being interrupted by gurning presenters and other zany antics such as gunge and phone-in quizzes. In many ways, Ministry of Mayhem was the last gasp for that Saturday morning type feature that followed in the wake of the far more anarchic and amusing Tiz was, and showed how tired the whole thing had become. Still, as the last show Anderson oversaw in his lifetime, it's a good one to go out on. Anderson went through a fallow period after his 1960s and 70s heyday, and it was good to see him back on top. I always felt Anderson was never really happy with his career, but I'm glad at the end he realised what an impact he'd made on the lives of children and adults everywhere. Jerry Anderson was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg before there was a George Lucas and a Steven Spielberg, and his brand of high adventure, highly marketable and hugely enjoyable high concept action shows were well ahead of their time. His back catalogue is full of imaginative gems just waiting to be rediscovered by children of all ages. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. Okay, let's have a look at the email bag. The email bag is empty. There is nothing in the email bag. Nothing. None of you bastards can be bothered emailing in. Despite all the time and effort these things take to write, produce, record, edit, not a word, not a syllable, not a thought. Oh, hang on, wait, wait. Something here, right at the bottom. Aha! A missive, a mighty missive. Nathaniel Wayne has not let me down. Good old Nathaniel. Let's read what Nathaniel has to say. Return of the Last Jedi. I like that title. And that would make a good Star Wars film. Hello there, Leyland. Hello, Nathaniel. Hope you're staying warm this winter. I'm just getting the habit of assuming it'll be six months before this feedback gets read. But then again, this is technically feedback to Palace and not Hey Kids. Damn it. Yes, the Palace of Glittering Delights is on a much more regular schedule than Hey Kids comics. Although that is very worth waiting for. I hope you'll agree. I have to admit to having been a little sad when I heard the latest K-Kids. K-Kids, I don't know who K-Kids is. She works down the road, perhaps, maybe with children, maybe in a primary school, I don't know, maybe a nursery. K-Kids, maybe that's her name. And she's named her nursery the K-Kids Factor, because that sounds quite good to me. I don't know who K-Kids, I'm just babbling. Should we just carry on with the email and pretend that that mistake never happened? No mention of my feedback on The Last Jedi. I kind of shrugged and figured perhaps you guys were as sick of debating it as most people by now. So imagine my surprise at an entire episode of Palace just addressing my feedback. Unexpected and delightful, to say the least. 
This is more of an acknowledgement that I heard and appreciated the civil responses, even though you're both still wrong, but hey, you're nice about being wrong, so it's all good. I'm not going to give counter-counter arguments because that's a spiral that never ends, and I think we can all agree that we just won't see eye to eye on this one, but we get along anyways. Does the internet know this is an option? Are we breaking a law? I believe we are, Nathaniel. I believe that uh, there is some, some written in the dank, dark regions of the internet. There is a law that says, you know, you can't like The Last Jedi and be friends with me. It's become very political in many ways. I will address one thing, mostly because it got into my head something that's become a persistent sticking point for me lately when I get into these conversations. When I brought up the weird fish nuns on the island and asked, why are they there? And the response was just to the logistical. Well, they live there, they keep the temple. But my question wasn't about the logistics, it was about the theming. Right, that's my fault. I I misunderstood your email. I thought it was very much a case of, why are they on Acto? What's the point? I misinterpreted what you're saying. That's my fault. When I brought up the... Well, I've said all that, haven't I? Uh, it undercuts Luke's isolation and separating himself from the rest of the galaxy if he's, you know, not actually alone. If they'd been more than just an occasional visual gag, that'd be different, but they aren't. My bigger point being, I often find myself frustrated when my issues over story, structure, theme or pacing are defended on the basis of logistics. Being able to explain and logically justify a story decision doesn't automatically make it a good one. See revealing Sandman to the real killer of Uncle Ben, so that Peter can have a personal motivation to go after what is otherwise just a bank robber in Spider-Man 3. It gets logistically justified, but it's still a really stupid plot point. I need to organise my points on this and ramble it out of my sister on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel one day, so I can stop being so bugged by it. Ooh, that was not the most smoothest insertion I've ever had with a plug. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds a bit rude. Apologies, I'm sure you can walk it off. No, I think I just made it worse. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm leaving that in. If you're offended by that gag tough. Uh, in any case, that's for getting back to this grumpy bugger of a listener and keep doing what you do, Geekly. Yours, Nathaniel. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't have any problem with the nuns. I mean, I, I take your point that why is Luke living somewhere where he wants to be alone, darling, if he's not actually alone? That's that's actually quite a good point. Um, but yeah, the, the Sandman Spider-Man thing is shit. You know, you could probably cut that that entire subplot out of the film with Sandman's kid and all that shooting of Uncle Ben and all that shit and just have Sandman be the lunkhead that he is in the comics and it would probably make that film 100% better. Anyway, should you wish to, you know, actually comment on the thing, there's Nathaniel's email, should you wish to actually comment on this crap, uh, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is where you can do so. Uh, there were some Facebook thanks and stuff for, for Palace for The Last Jedi. Maybe Nathaniel's right. Maybe everyone's fed up talking about The Last Jedi. I'm not. I love talking about it, but, you know, whatever. Um, I'll see you all next time with, um, I believe it's going to be an all-new episode about to reboot or not reboot. That's what I'm in the middle of writing at the minute. Uh, as usual, we're a 2 True Freaks presentation. Proud member of the family. Uh, drop by them the webpage click on the amazon link gives us a kickback that's all very much appreciated um just before i go one one the reason you got essentially two episodes sandwiched into one here was that uh, i didn't have any email and both episodes which were recorded as individuals felt somewhat lacking in content 
So I thought, oh, I'll just sandwich them together and give you a good 45, 50 minute episode instead of a mediocre 20 minute episode. I mean, I'm not saying it's not mediocre now, but, you know, at least it's a longer brand of mediocre rather than a, a 20 minute brand of mediocre. At least there's a reason to actually plug me into your phone or your stereo or your car radio or whatever the hell you listen to this drivel on. Anyway, thank you very much, Nathaniel, for being the only person who emailed in. It's much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much for emailing in with something that gave me an episode. Content is always welcome. And as I say, I'll see you next time with um, uh, a chat about reboots, uh, or shows that should be rebooted, shows that shouldn't be rebooted, shows that shouldn't be touched, that kind of thing. See you then. Bye-bye.